As we begin today, I would like your indulgence for a second to close your eyes. And while you're closing your eyes, I want you to imagine that you are back in high school. So maybe this is a good place, so maybe this is not a good place. But I want you to imagine what you look like, what you're wearing, what your hair looks like, who you're with, maybe people you haven't seen in decades, what it feels like to be back there. Now open your eyes. When I did that same exact experience earlier this week, my mind did not go to this. It didn't go to a hallway with backpacks and jackets and lockers and the cool kids and all the different tables and the cafeteria. My thought didn't go to this. It went to this. Because this was my experience in high school. I got really, really really good at this. There was a different Scott for every different environment I was in. There was the Scott who was captain of the state runner-up baseball team by one run, hashtag not bitter, (laughs) who was popular among my, my teammates enough for them to vote me captain my senior year. And so there was that Scott from three to six every afternoon. That was a different Scott than I was from 8 to 3 during the day at school when I was a smarty. This is what my friends would throw at me when I broke the curve in our class. They would literally throw smarties at me. Um, And that's who I was. I was the smart kid. I was the valedictorian. I was the guy who killed the curve. And then there was the Scott who wanted all of those people who was throwing smarties at him to like him. And so I shifted and molded to be who those people wanted me to be. And then I went to church, and then there was a different Scott from my youth group, because I was the pastor's kid. I was the guy who knew all the answers. And for most of our, our time in high school, we, we didn't actually have a youth pastor, and so we led our youth group. And so that's the first time I began to teach and lead, and so there was a different Scott there. And, and then I would go home, and I wanted to be a good kid, and I wanted my parents to approve of me, and I was a firstborn, and so I had this self-imposed standard to live up to, and so there was that too. And that's only five of the masks. I could go on, but that's not what the sermon's about. But when those years ended, I went to college, and I ran into a huge problem. I wasn't friends with lots of different people. I was friends with the same people, and they saw me in all those different environments. And I realized that if I was going to connect with them, I had to figure out who I actually was. Not who all those masks said that I am, but who I actually was. And the summer after my junior year, I went through a breakup that was difficult. I initiated it, but it was still difficult because part of the reason the relationship didn't work is because I had been wearing a mask. I had been holding in some true feelings that I never actually expressed that ended up making it impossible to have a relationship when you don't talk about those kind of things. And then I stumbled on a book at that time that changed my life by Brendan Manning, a former Catholic priest called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And it was Manning who was the first person who got through my mask to convince me that I didn't have to perform for God to love. That I didn't have to perform and wear a mask to get God to accept me. And, and 
Brennan Manning took me to Romans chapter 8 and showed me that I was no longer condemned because I was in Christ Jesus. That nothing could separate me from God's love. And that in spite of my performance, God loved me, not because of it. And it was that period in my life that I began a journey that's brought me to today. And it's part of the reason why we're having this series called The Emoji Exchange. Because I learned in those days that the most important thing about me was what God said about me. And for the last 10 or 12 years, I've been trying to work on aligning the way I see me with the way God sees me. And for me, that became difficult in those days because I had become addicted to wearing a mask to gain people's approval. It was a pattern I didn't know how to break out of. It was a way of life that had begun to pay off for me. It was my addiction. And so this is our addiction emoji. It didn't survive the first service very well. So the eyes started falling off. It turned into the winking emoji. So hopefully it will, it will last better this service. But, but the emoji that we're going to talk about today is addiction. Now some of you may go, I didn't come to Prescott because of an addiction and I don't have one. I think we're all addicts. All of us. There's a definition of addiction that I've kind of um, come to grab a hold of, and it says that addiction is an unhealthy or um, extreme interest in something, something that you have to have or something that you have to do. And I believe all of us at some point in our life have had something that falls in that category, something that we have to have, something that we have to do, something that we have an unhealthy and extreme interest in. Something that when we're not doing it, we're thinking about when the next time is we can do it. And that is the source of the beginning of the exchange I want to talk to you about today. In this series, we're talking about exchanging one thing for another, who we are in our flesh, in our humanness, for who God says we are in Christ. And the exchange we're talking about today is this, that in Christ, we get to exchange our addiction for true freedom. When we become in Christ, when we begin putting our faith and trust in him, when he forgives our sins, when we become in Christ, and we'll continue to unpack that phrase today, we get to, and if you want to just write in between we and exchange the words get to, I'm a big believer in get to over have to. Get to changes your life when you shift from have to to get to. We get to, it's a privilege. We get to exchange our addiction for true freedom. And this morning, we're going to unpack a passage that shows us what that's all about. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 is our home for this series. We're going to be in this book until Easter, which if you don't know, is almost a month away. You can buy those godforsaken peeps at the store right now. Please do not send me them. I will just throw them in the trash and you'll waste your money. Somebody will invariably do that this week. And um, I promise you, there's better things to spend your money on than buying me peeps. My friend who's watching in Phoenix, do not mail me peeps this year. But in Romans chapter 8, we have what one pastor and commentator, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the most famous pastors of the 1800s, calls the greatest chapter in the Bible. Those are really strong words. The greatest chapter in the Bible. I'm not there yet. I'm going to call it arguably the greatest chapter in the Bible. But I think that Romans 8, if you only had this chapter... It might be enough. 
And in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, we'll pick up on a verse we covered last week and then dive into a new one. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. This morning, I want to share with you five truths about this freedom that's available to us. And the first one is this, that we have been set free because of what Jesus did. We have been set free, not because of what we did, but because of what Jesus did. The reason why there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and if you missed last week's message, I'd encourage you to go online and watch it. The reason why there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus is because the law of the spirit of life has set us free. And we're no longer bound to the law of sin and death. What Paul is describing here is that there are two laws at work in the world. There's the law of sin and death, which is the reason why Jesus had to come. It's the reason why he had to die, that we were bound by that law. But he says there's another law, and that law is the law of the spirit of life. And because that law is now at work in the world, in Christ Jesus, we're no longer subject to the law of sin and death. You say, Scott, that's a little bit complicated. Well, it's actually something that all of us have experienced, or probably most of us. All of us know what it's like to be bound by a law, because all of us are right now bound by the law of gravity. It's the reason why you're stuck on planet Earth. It's the reason why you're not floating into space. It's the reason why I will never have the joy and the honor and the privilege of dunking a basketball in a 10-foot hoop. It's the law of gravity. And it holds us and binds us here. Sir Isaac Newton discovered it with that fateful apple that fell on his head. And since then, we've become aware of the law of gravity. But many of us, maybe even most of us, have seen that law be broken. You want to know why? Because you've flown on an airplane. You've broken the law of gravity. You're a lawbreaker. You broke the law. How did you break the law? Well, the law of gravity leaves you here on earth until you get in a plane. This is a 747 here. And you get enough thrust. And enough thrust creates enough lift for you to break free of gravity temporarily while your plane stays at that same speed or climbing for you to fly. And what happens in that moment is the law of gravity is defeated or overcome temporarily by the law of thermodynamics. One law comes and replaces and overcomes another law. And that's what happens according to Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. That the law of the spirit of life, which we can, for our illustration, tag thermodynamics sets you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, which we would call gravity. And that's what Jesus came to do that we couldn't do for ourselves. And you go, Scott, this is getting clearer, but this sounds really elementary or basic. It is, but many of us have lost sight of it. Because in many churches and in many seats, like you're sitting in right now, the dominant American belief is not that you have been set free from the law of sin and death because of what Jesus did. The dominant belief is that you did it on your own. 
Christian Smith in his research calls it moralistic therapeutic deism. And it's the dominant belief of a generation that's coming up in the church today that believes that when they go to heaven, when they die, they will enter into heaven not because they were set free by the law of spirit of life. They will be entering into heaven because they are better than the person next to them or that their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds. This isn't just those people out there who don't go to church on Sunday morning. This is many people who sit in a church every Sunday who, who believe that they are loved by God because they are a better person than most. Not as good as Mother Teresa, not as good as Billy Graham, but a pretty good person. And that's not actually what this says. Tim Keller talks about it this way. He said, there's a great gulf between understanding that God accepts us because of our efforts. And just stop right there. That's what many of us have come to believe. That God accepts us because of our good efforts and our good deeds. There's a gulf between believing that and understanding that God accepts us because of what Jesus has done. Religion operates on the principle, I obey Therefore, I am accepted by God. And many of us grew up in spiritual environments that taught us, either consciously or subconsciously, you need to do all these things. You need to obey them so that God will accept you so you won't go to heaven when you die. So you will go to heaven, so you don't go to hell. But that isn't the operating principle of the gospel. The operating principle of the gospel is, I am accepted by God through what Christ has done. Therefore, I obey. And that's a huge difference. And that's why these basic elementary things we cannot lose sight of. Or we will shift into a religion of good deeds and good efforts where we believe that we're better than other people because we think it's about what we did. That's why there's no room for arrogance in this place. You can't be a mature Christian and be arrogant. If you're arrogant, you're not a mature Christian. Because when the gospel says, I am accepted not by anything that I did, by what Christ has done, the only product of that is humility, not arrogance. And if you haven't got that, you haven't got to maturity yet first truth about freedom is that we're set free by what he did, not what we did. Paul continues in verse 3. He says, for what God has done, he's done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but who walk according to the Spirit. The second truth about freedom is that we couldn't free ourselves. So, so the reason that we're free is what Christ did. And even if we tried, we couldn't actually do it. We couldn't do it in our own power and strength. In this passage, in verses 3 and 4, just these two verses, if you count them, there's one, two, three, four references to what Paul calls the flesh. Now, what we read as the flesh in English, 
was originally written here in Greek, and it was written as the word sarx. This is the Greek word that we translate flesh. Paul wrote the letter called Romans in Greek, and he used the word sarx here. And that's significant. Because in that day and in that era, anybody reading this letter in Rome who got this letter would immediately think of something. And what Paul is about to do is correct even their understanding of this word. Because the Roman culture was still dominated by Greek philosophy. If you know your world history, you know that the Romans conquered the Greeks militarily. And the Greek empire faded and the Roman empire began. But the Greek philosophy and culture remained. Even though you were a Roman citizen, you were a Greek thinker. And Greek thinkers thought of Sark's flesh in a particular way. And they thought that each person had a flesh and a separate spirit. This was your Sark's and this was your pneuma, your spirit. And they believed that you could have a person who was bad in their flesh and good in their spirit. That in their flesh, they didn't have the strength, but they did in their spirit. And what Paul is saying here is that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about sarks in that way. I'm not talking about it. You have a bad flesh and a good spirit. Paul is saying when I use the word flesh, I'm describing everything that makes you you. Your flesh, your soul, your mind, everything. And all of it is broken, sinful, and lost. And he says this here. He says, what God has done, what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Christ came in the flesh. He was a real person, but he didn't have the sinful flesh that we do. By sending him in sinful flesh and the likeness of it and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So what he's saying is that if it was just your body that was broken, sinful, and lost, then all he would have had to do is give you a new body, right? But it's not just your body, it's your entire flesh, including your spirit, that was weak. And by sending Jesus, he condemned sin in that flesh. He made it possible for you to enter into freedom. And this is why we have to push back even on the ways that Greek philosophy has influenced us. Because some of us go, man, it's just my, it's just my flesh is bad. My body is bad. My, my heart wants it. That's a Greek way of thinking. You're a 21st century American and you're still thinking like a Greek. But what Paul is saying is that Christ came because all of you, body, mind, soul, spirit, all of you was broken, lost, and sinful. And Christ came and died so that you could be free, something you would have never been able to do on your own. And that's why some of us have had such a struggle with our addictions. Because we've been trying to conquer our addictions in the power of our flesh, in our own strength. I love how Carlos Whitaker talks about it in his book, Kill the Spider. He says, freedom is not found in striving. Freedom is found in surrender. According to Romans chapter 8, it's not us working harder and harder so that we can earn our freedom. It's surrendering and receiving the freedom 
that's been made possible for us. That's why for years, Billy Graham stood on stages like this and presented a gospel that wasn't about Billy Graham's greatness. It's about the greatness that's found when you surrender and the freedom you find when you lay down your efforts to try to be a good person and free yourself and you recognize, I could have never freed myself anyway. I have to receive the freedom that is offered to me. Paul continues in verse 5. He says this. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it doesn't submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The third truth about freedom that Paul teaches us here is that we don't know how to live free on our own. It's not just that, that on our own we couldn't actually free ourselves. It's that once we actually enter into this, this freedom, we have no idea what we're doing. Because you've never ever been free before. It's like the first time you toss a 15-year-old keys to drive a car. Well, they have a learner's permit. They have no idea how to drive. They've never driven before. And in the same way, we've never actually been free, and we don't know how to live free. And that's why Paul introduces this teacher that's going to show us the way to live in freedom, and that teacher is called the Holy Spirit. In this passage, Romans 8, these 39 verses, there are 18 references to the Holy Spirit. That is more than any single chapter in the Bible. You might call this the Holy Spirit chapter. There's more references than any other place in the Bible in this one chapter. And, and when I use the word Holy Spirit, some of you have a couple different reactions. Some of you get a cold sweat because you've been in a spiritual environment where the Holy Spirit was a bad thing. Maybe you grew up in a Baptist environment that was all about Jesus and never discussed the Holy Spirit because that was kind of something to be afraid of. Others of you did a little happy dance when I showed that little word, the Holy Spirit, because you're all about the Spirit. And what I love about Cornerstone is that we are an evangelical free church. That means that we're a big tent theologically. We have people in our church who, who believe the Holy Spirit is real and active. They just believe certain gifts that, we, that were in the Bible aren't active today. There's other people in our church who believe that they're active and they believe they have them. And because that's not a primary issue of salvation or the nature of God, we have freedom for that. We embrace the words of John Wesley who said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, love. That's our guiding theological push. And so there's freedom here on different sides. But for many of us, we've never really come to understand who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does. And some of that problem has to do with this word right here, the. Even the way that we talk about the Holy Spirit leads us to a place where we don't consider the Holy Spirit a person. Some of you have no problem talking about God the Father as a person, because you have a father. Whether that father's a good one or not, you know what that is. And so, okay, God, the father, that, that's a person. Jesus, well, he was literally a person here on earth. That's no problem. But then the Holy Spirit is kind of just this 
thing. And we have a hard time with it. And a friend of mine a few years ago was teaching, and I was listening to him, and I pulled him aside afterwards, and I said, hey, you did something weird up there. I said, what did I do? He said, you kept talking about the Holy Spirit, but you left off the the. You just kept calling him Holy Spirit. He goes, yeah, I call you Scott, not the Scott. I call him Bob, not the Bob. He said, if Holy Spirit is his name, why don't we call him that? So if you hear me for the rest of the day, call him Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit. That's why. Because I think a lot of us, we've got God as a person, we've got Jesus as a person, but the Holy Spirit, we've got a lot of work. In Jesus' last conversation over dinner, we call it the Last Supper with his disciples, he defined the role of the Spirit. He said, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So this is the role of the Spirit. The Spirit's role is to help us. Spirit's role is ordained and sent by God. Spirit's role is to teach us and to bring to remembrance all the things God's already said to us. If you go, on, if you go home today and read John 14, 15, and 16, you'll see other things that Jesus teaches about the role of the Spirit. But that teaching and guidance is so that we can learn to understand and live in this freedom. The outcome of that, according to Romans 6, as we just read, is this. That when we set our minds on the Spirit, we discover life and peace. And if there's any one thing that's absent in our world, but people are desperate for, it's peace. And not the kind of peace that Miss America talks about. But the kind of peace that you're looking for when you go to your addiction. The reason why I said that a lot of us in this room know what it's like to have an addiction is that we know that gnawing sense we have in our heart that longs for peace. And whether it's a substance, a place you go, someone's approval or a website you go online what you're looking for when you go to this addiction is peace you're not looking for the wrong thing you're looking in the wrong place and when you begin to recognize that God did not come to give you an oppressive list of do's and don'ts he came to give you a path to freedom and he longs for you to find peace, then you will begin to lay behind the things that can never bring you peace. That's the lie your addiction tells you. There's just a volume problem. You don't have enough of it. And if you had more of it, you would have more peace. You're not going to get peace from that. It isn't a quantity issue. You're looking in the wrong place. And what the Holy Spirit does is it shows us not only, hey, you're free, but this is how you live in freedom. As, as believers in the Bible and as followers of Jesus, we believe that every single person who has put their faith and trust in Jesus has the Holy Spirit. You got it the moment that God transferred you from death to life. And that, that spirit is like, in a sense, a pilot light. You know, like a light in a gas stove that's there that powers that stove. And every believer has that. 
But some people seem not to have a pilot-like sense of the Holy Spirit or a pilot-like sense of freedom. They seem to have a huge fire. I mean, that person is really filled with the Spirit. Why is that? It's not because they're a better person. It's not because they've learned more or experienced more. It doesn't mean that they have some quality that other people don't. The only difference between this and this is fuel. And that's the difference. The difference is this person is still striving in their own power and in their own strength. And this person is surrendered to the Holy Spirit and is giving the Spirit fuel to turn that small light into an inferno. So the question is, when it comes to freedom, are you still striving in your own strength or have you surrendered to the power of the Holy Spirit with your mind on the Spirit and are you experiencing that freedom in that life? We've got to hurry a little bit. We've got a couple more passages to hit. Paul continues in Romans 8 by saying this in verse 9. You, however, he says, are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to the flesh. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The fourth truth about freedom is this. We receive a new paradigm. We receive a new paradigm. Paradigm is a model or a framework or a template. It's a way of thinking. And our culture has experienced a variety of paradigm shifts. There was an era around the turn of the century where the paradigm was, you need a faster horse. And then Henry Ford invented the automobile. And it was a paradigm shift. You don't need a faster horse. You need a car. When I was growing up, the paradigm was you need longer ESP, electronic skip protection, so that your CD wouldn't skip while you were driving down the road and there was bumps in the road. For those of you who are under 18, you didn't suffer through road trips like we did. Holding your CD player on a pillow, praying that it wouldn't skip through your favorite song. You know my pain. I'm glad. Well, then what happened? Then Steve Jobs said, what if you could hold a thousand songs in your pocket with an iPod? It literally can't skip. And paradigm changed. When we enter into the freedom that Christ has for us, we receive a new paradigm. And here's what the paradigm is. I want you to imagine that you're sitting in a car. Maybe the car you drove here today. You're sitting in the car. You're holding onto the steering wheel. That's That's the essence of who you are today, where you are, February 25th, 2018, that you, okay? You have a good idea of who you are today, where you are? Then I want you to turn and look in your imaginary car at your rearview mirror, okay? And, And in that rearview mirror is the you, you were in 1998. That's crazy, right? You were a radically different person in 1998. Do you even recognize 
1998 you? I mean, it's crazy, huh? How different you are. I was 14 years old and covered in acne. I'm so glad I'm not there anymore. Okay? Now I want you to imagine that you're still in your car and you're looking out the front window. And that's who you are in 2038. Can you even imagine who you're going to be in 2038? Because if that's who you were in 1998, and this is who you are in 2018, imagine who you're going to be in 2038. That's why in Romans chapter 8, Paul says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, that's what we believe. The power that raised Christ from the dead is beating inside your chest every single day if you are a follower of Jesus. If that spirit is in you, then he who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What that means is you can't even conceive. You can't even imagine who you're going to be out that front window. Because the power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you. And if this is what he could do in the last 20 years, you can't even imagine what he's going to do in the next. That's the new paradigm. And that's why some of you have not given God enough credit. Some of you who speak words of death and you're like, this is who I'm always going to be. This is how I'm always going to struggle. This is the battle I'm always going to face. No. The same power that raised God from the dead lives in you if you are in Christ. And if that's true, then who you are in the future, if I showed you today, you wouldn't believe it. It's that incredible. Paul concludes this section in verse 12. He says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The fifth and final truth that Paul has for us is that we need death to sustain freedom. We need death to sustain freedom. Now, Paul begins this passage by saying that we are debtors, and many of us think about debt as this giant baggage and weight behind us. If you've ever been in credit card debt, you know what that's like. My wife and I got married, and we had almost $25,000 in consumer debt, and it was a huge weight around our neck like this. But the debt that Paul is talking about is not like that, and it's not to the flesh, he says. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If, if you live in the flesh, it will be this burden for you. If you read this book and you try to do it in your own power and strength, the Bible will be a giant weight for you and it will crush your soul. If you do it in your own power and strength. But what Paul is saying is that that's not our debt. He says, if we live according to the flesh, we die. But if by the Spirit we put to death, the deeds of the body will live. And so this debt is not one like this that's a weight. It's a debt of opportunity. It's the opportunity in front of us to choose life, to embrace the life that God has for us. And I came across this story this week that I think illustrates this passage perfectly. This is a Cherokee legend that there was a Cherokee boy 
who came of age in this tribe. He turned 13, and he became a menace. He was destroying the life of this tribe. He was arrogant and angry. He was selfish and entitled. And everything about this tribe's life together was in jeopardy because of this one boy. He was destroying everything. And the boy was brought before a council of the elders of this Cherokee tribe. And and the elders began telling the boy all the things he was doing and all of the consequences that those things were bringing. And when the boy began to recognize the impact of his choices, he was sobered and downcast. And then the chief spoke to him directly. He says, I can see what's going on inside of you. And the boy said, what can you see? He said, I see inside of you a battle between two wolves. And they're fighting against one another. He said, there's the old wolf that's who you were, and it's angry and it's proud, and it's insecure, and it's driven by selfishness. And there's a, a, a new wolf coming up, and that, that wolf is driven by love. It's driven by selflessness. It's driven by service. It's not consumed with itself. It's consumed with other people. He says, and I even know which, which wolf is going to win. And the boy asked him, which one wins? He said, the one you feed the most. That's the essence of what Paul is talking about here. That there is the flesh and there is the spirit. And the one that will win is the one that you feed. And for many of you, you've wanted to overcome your addiction, but you've continued to feed it. And until you begin feeding that freedom and begin setting your mind on the spirit, you'll never know that freedom. Paul says that in Christ, we get to exchange our addiction for true freedom. If you want to figure out what this looks like practically, I've got two steps for you before we leave today. And I'm a couple minutes over. The first one is this. The first thing we need to do is to give fuel to the Holy Spirit. If you want to step into that freedom and exchange your addiction for freedom, if you're in Christ. Now, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, this is, that's, this is like step number four. You need to go back to step number one and begin a relationship with him and experience the freedom that he offers you for the first time. But, but if you're a believer and you're struggling with a place where you're bound up in the flesh, then it begins by giving fuel to the Holy Spirit so that that pilot lights can explode in your life. And, and giving fuel to the Spirit for me involves three things. The first one is this. Am I listening? Ask yourself, am I really listening? Or is my life so busy and so loud that I wouldn't hear God even if he spoke? I've only been alive for 33 years, but here's what I've found. That God doesn't typically shout. He whispers. And if your life is so busy and so loud all the time, you'll never hear him. Am I listening? Am I connecting? Are you doing the things that you have done in the past that puts you in a place to give fuel to the Spirit? Are there people that you need to be around and connect with? Are there places that you need to connect or are there practices you need to connect with that help put you in a place to give fuel to the Spirit? And then even number three, are you even, just, are you even seeking the Spirit? 
Are you even seeking to put your mind on the Holy Spirit? Or is it not even a concern for you? Because if it's not a concern for you, it's like that old cliche where we say, hey, I feel distant from God. Well, who moved? Was it even a concern that you would seek him, much less find him? Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And then number two, starve the flesh. Starve the flesh. And starving the flesh involves three things. It involves eliminating, fasting, and changing. For me, in this season, I just want you to know today, I have preached this whole sermon without coffee today. So I am in the middle of a 45-day fast from coffee because I had a feeling that if I didn't do that, I was headed towards an addiction. Because in the past, I have been a coffee addict. When I was in college, I drank 12 shots of espresso every single day. That's 900 milligrams, for those of you who do the math. When I was in seminary, I took coffee in the morning, venti, coffee in the afternoon, venti, and rock star before class. I could not live without coffee. I'm not there anymore, but I don't want to go back. And so for me, I chose fast. Some of you may choose eliminate. I have a friend who was addicted to pornography and it cost him his job. He doesn't own a smartphone and he says he never will. Because he says, I can't trust myself. For some of you, starving the flesh may involve eliminating something and never going back. And then some of you, it may mean changing. Changing your relationship with it. At the end of 45 days on Easter, yes, I will preach Easter Sunday with a glorious cup of coffee. But I'm going to have to change my relationship with it if I want to continue to drink it. Because I can't go back to the guy who drank 12 shots a day. I just can't. And here's what happens. When we begin to exchange who we were for who God says we are, we can exchange addiction for freedom. Because according to Romans 8, this is who you are in Christ. You are approved and you're free. And my prayer for these six weeks is that these wouldn't just be words on the screen for you. That over the six weeks, you would begin to accept that what God says about you is the truest thing about you. And that you wouldn't just read it. But you believe it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the ways that you are speaking through your word, and we thank you that a letter that was written nearly 2,000 years ago still has profound relevance for our lives today. God, there are so many of us in this room who have struggled with an addiction in our life, something we either had to have or had to do, something that we had so much of an interest in that even when we weren't thinking or doing it, we were thinking or planning the next time we could. You say in your word that it is for freedom that you set us free. That you came that we might have life and have it abundantly. And so the places of addiction where we've lived is not your intent for us. The places of shame that we've lived in because of our struggles with those addictions are not the places you intended for us. And we thank you that we have this 
text to speak into our lives that shows us that we were not intended to live in addiction, that we were intended to live in true freedom. And so we pray this morning you'd speak to our hearts. For some of us, it's actually admitting for the first time that we have a problem. For some of us, it's recognizing that it isn't just something that we like to do, it's something that we have to do. Some of us, it's, it's recognizing that we can't actually set ourselves free. We need to come to the end of striving and step into surrender. Some of us in this room, it's recognizing that, that we've lost sight on what Christ did for us and we've become focused on all the good deeds that we're doing. And our confidence has shifted from your one act to all of our actions. God, break our hearts Lead us into a spirit of repentance in this season and help us to claim and develop the identity you've given us through your son's death and resurrection. That not only are we approved by you, but we're free in you. And that freedom is possible not because we're going to work harder, but because you've already done all that needs to be done. We pray that we would believe the words that we'll sing this morning and that they would be true of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.